Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. If you're here for the first time, as Billy said, welcome. We're so glad to have you. I'd love to meet you afterward. Um, what we're going to be doing this morning, we're continuing a series we've been in the last couple months in the book of Isaiah. We're going to be spending, uh, we still got another month or two that we'll be in this book, basically through the end of Labor Day. And what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be kind of jumping around a little bit. There's not, if you look in your bulletin, it kind of says various passages because we'll be in a bunch of different spots. What we've been doing in this series is we've been tracing the major themes of Isaiah. And what we're starting today is kind of a four-week mini-series in this book of looking at the theme of justice in the book of Isaiah. Now, if you've been reading through Isaiah with us this summer, as we encourage a lot of you guys to do, you've probably seen how this theme comes up in key places throughout the book, in chapter 1, in chapter 5, and especially in chapters 58 and 59 and 61, where Chris is going to be spending the next three weeks with us. But what I want to do this morning is, as, as we look at this theme of justice in Isaiah, this idea of justice already had a ton of meaning already before Isaiah used it. As a matter of fact, he's speaking and calling out the people for their injustice based upon what God had already taught them about what justice ought to look like in the law of Moses. So we're going to jump around and look at a few of the different things and just try to build that concept of what is this idea of justice that Isaiah is talking about so we know what it looks like to pursue it. Because... Justice is a really hot-button issue in our culture. And in many ways, I mean, every group and every cause is somehow seeking to, to, to work for the sake of justice, to pursue or advocate for justice for some social issue in our culture, some global issue. And by and large, this is a good thing. We ought to be concerned about justice. I mean, American society was built upon the ideal of liberty and justice for all. Many of us grew up saying that every morning before school in the Pledge of Allegiance. And that is a very beautiful ideal, liberty and justice for all, but it has only ever been an ideal in American society or any society. Something that we have always fallen short of. Every society has a lot of room to grow when we talk about this idea of justice. But because it's so important, we have to make sure as we start out this morning, one of the things that makes it so hard to actually pursue justice in our world is that there's so many different views of what justice is and what it means to go after it. I'm going to get controversial for a second just to show us how hard this is. I mean, think for instance an issue like immigration. Refugees, people seeking asylum in our country for various reasons. Typically, on one side, you have people who are advocating, saying, no, we need to enforce the laws on the books, and we need to deal with the people who come into this country based upon whether they did or did not obey those laws when they came into the country. Then on the other side, you have people saying, no, if what we want is justice, we have to recognize that the laws that are on the books themselves are unjust, and lead to the mistreatment of people. And so we need to seek to change those laws. And until we do, the priority needs to be protecting the dignity of people and families, even if it means we don't enforce the law. And there's so much anger and animosity because both sides of that issue firmly believe that they are on the side of justice. But oftentimes, those same two groups are completely flipped when we flip to an, an issue like abortion. 
The same people who advocate for enforce the law are the people who are saying, no, the law that allows unborn babies to be murdered is unjust and we need to change it. And then those who are saying, no, don't obey the law, care for people, are the ones who are saying, no, we need to protect the law that gives women the right to choose. And again, both firmly believe they are on the side of justice. My purpose in making all of us angry by saying that is to show us that we all, inside and outside the church, struggle to be balanced in the way that we actually think about justice. We struggle to be consistent. We need a bigger view. We need a better picture. What is justice? How do we know if we're actually pursuing it? How do we know if justice has actually been served in a situation? And most importantly for the next four weeks, what does God say about justice? What is the biblical vision of justice? Because the Bible teaches us that justice is not just some topic that exists out there in the world, but that justice, fairness, equity are defining attributes of God's character. He is just. That doesn't mean that we can take whatever our personal definition of justice is and impose that upon God and say, God, therefore, is my vision of justice. But the other way of saying, no, I need to shape and calibrate my conscience. We, as God's people, need to calibrate our consciences based upon who God is and what that means that justice is in light of his character. So this morning, what I want to do is the title of my message is the two sides of justice. If you will, I kind of want to lay the railroad tracks, the two rails that we're going to travel down over the next few weeks together. Or perhaps a better way to think about it isn't just a railroad track, but more like a subway track where there's a third rail that actually supplies the power to move things forward. Because there's actually three key ideas that we need to keep in mind. One is the idea of righteousness. And then the other is the idea of justice that has two sides to it. So righteousness and the two sides of justice, that's where we're going to be going this morning. Here's why this is so important. In the Old Testament, the words righteousness and justice occur together almost a hundred times, which means that these two concepts are really important to relate to each other. Take a look at Isaiah 56 verse 1, where God says this to the people. He says, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Together, these two terms, justice and righteousness, define the, the moral compass, the ethic that was meant to drive Israel in their life as a nation. Now, righteousness on the one hand, we have to keep in mind, this isn't just talking about someone's personal moral standing or simply just that vertical relationship between them and God. Does God see them as righteous or as a sinner? Throughout the Old Testament, it is abundantly clear that righteousness has to do not only with my relationship with God, but also the rightness, the fairness of my actions and attitudes toward those around me. If you want to know what righteousness means, it really comes down to what Jesus said when he was asked what the two greatest commandments in the law were. He said, okay, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, everything that you are. That's the first in the great commandment. But a second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, if you, as long as you, you love God perfectly and unrivaledly, if that's a word, with everything that you are, and you love your neighbor as yourself, then you are righteous. 
The problem is none of us live that way. We never live that way perfectly. As a matter of fact, our love for ourselves clouds and perverts our love both for God and for others. And that, our self-love, is the root of injustice and unrighteousness in the world, our disregard for the love of God and others. So if that's what righteousness is, perfectly loving God, perfectly loving others, then justice really is just the way you combat all the problems that come up because we don't live righteously. And when I talk about the two sides of justice, it's kind of like this. Think about like, think about like if you break your arm. That bone is displaced, it's all mangled and gross. So you go to the doctor and he'll do two main things. He'll reset the bone, hopefully give you something for the pain, but he'll reset the bone and then he'll put a protective cast around it. Re, like set it straight again, make it safe so that it can heal and be restored to wholeness. But what if in the midst of that healing process, an infection develops and it festers to the point where in order to protect the health of the rest of the person, the best thing to do is to amputate that arm, actually destroy and remove this limb so that the rest of the body can be spared. That's what I mean when I talk about the two sides of justice, the biblical vision for justice, how we deal with the effects of unrighteousness in our world. It encompasses both what I would call retribution and restoration, both punishment of sin and seeking to restore or protect and provide for those who are being mistreated. Both of these are justice. But for most people, both inside and outside the church, we really struggle to be balanced on both sides of that. Either we say justice is only, man, it's Clint Eastwood riding into town and bringing justice to the bad guys in the Western movie. Or on the other side, justice is only care and provision for the poor without dealing with the reasons why they might be in that situation in the first place. The biblical view of justice encompasses all of them. It is holistic in that way based upon God's definition of righteousness as love for him and others. Now, there's a great video the Bible Project guys have put together that really defines this well for us on both sides of this idea of justice. So turn your attention to the screens real quick. We're going to spend the next five or so minutes watching this together. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that. But we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. 
But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use. But what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like... Here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. 
It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I don't know. That, that's, this, that's, that's one of those, of those videos. videos. I, 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 I love a lot of the stuff those guys put together. But I feel like that's one I feel like I have to come back to somewhat often. It's really only been in the last year or so for myself that I've really ever seriously looked into, seriously looked into the biblical idea of justice and found that I definitely was one of those ones where it's crime and punishment. That's justice. But to see this whole other side of using the, the dignity and grace that God's shown me to bestow dignity and grace upon others... That really was never there for me before. The the point is we all have a lot to learn, myself included, both cognitively in the understanding of it, which is kind of the the main thing I'm going after today, and then experientially in the way that we work this out in our lives and in our relationships. I thought they did a great job in the video talking about both sides of that. Yes, retribution. There is punishment for the guilty. Scripture is clear on that. But there's even so much more in the Old Testament about this restorative justice, bringing protection and provision and seeking to to elevate those whose worth and dignity is is not being recognized. And I love how they show in the video how all that comes together in Jesus. In a couple minutes, we're going to talk more about Him. But first, I just want to address one of the the big questions that came up in my mind as I was thinking about this idea of justice. And And it's this, wait, but isn't justice supposed to be blind? Oftentimes, justice is pictured in our culture as as a woman, a statue, and she's got a sword in her hand to bring justice, and she's got a scale so that she's fair, and she wears a blindfold so that way she's not swayed by appearances, that that justice is meant to be impartial and fair. And what I found is that, yes, when we are talking about retributive justice, punishment for the guilty, or even determining who is wrong in a situation, how to address a if a wrong has happened in a situation. Yes, there is a blindness that justice should have, an impartiality, a fairness. We see this actually as well in God's commands to his people Israel. Look at Leviticus chapter 19. It says this, you shall do no injustice in court. Well, what would injustice look like? Well, it would be to be partial, whether you give partiality to the poor or to the great. But instead, in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. In a courtroom setting, in determining who's wrong, at fault in a situation, in determining which situations are worthy of a judge's time and attention, it should be impartial. No, no, no privilege shown to the poor or to the great. Deuteronomy 1 as well. Moses says, I charged your judges at that time, saying, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien, the foreigner, the immigrant who's with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. So yes, in this case, when we're talking retribution, there is a blindness. Someone's someone's, um, status or means or lack thereof should not come into account in that situation. But when we flip and talk about the other side of justice, restoration, justice must not be blind. 
Someone's status and situation absolutely must come into account. Those who are poor or marginalized or have special needs or, or lack just economic or social or even just physical power, within the life of Old Testament Israel, they were given special treatment. But even that word special treatment strikes us as weird, right? Because God says that that special consideration due to those who are vulnerable is not just special treatment, not just charity. He calls it justice. Look at the way that Deuteronomy 24 talked about it. Moses says, or God says through Moses, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner. Now, that's an old school word we don't use often. In the Bible Project video, they often, instead of sojourner, they use the word immigrant. And that actually probably is the best translation. The Hebrew root word just basically is referring to someone who, who is not a natural citizen, not, not born there. They're, they're not a blood relative to the people group amongst their living. And in that case, they would have been dependent upon the hospitality of those who were naturalized citizens because they didn't have those same rights and access that the people did. So he says, there is justice that's due to the sojourner, the immigrant, and to the fatherless and the widow. Within a society where, where property passed through male descendants, and a society that was largely agrarian, they, they farmed and sheep herded and all that kind of stuff to provide for themselves, without land, without property, you didn't have not only just a place to live, but you didn't have the means to provide food for yourself. So he says that the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, the immigrant, the fatherless, the widow, those three throughout the Old Testament and in the book of Isaiah, together with a group that's always just uh, more generally referred to as the poor, are what's, what scholars often call the quartet of the vulnerable. These ones in a, in a more vulnerable, precarious situation who therefore deserved or and were due special consideration and care within Israel. But Keep going in this passage. What did that special consideration and care look like? Look at this. Right after that, he says, okay, what is the justice that's due to the foreigner, to the widow, to the fatherless? Well, he says, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf, don't go back and get it. It's not yours anymore. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless. The, oh, one important note when we talk about sojourner or immigrant, because this question has come up in the past when we've talked about this. The Hebrew idea of, a, of an immigrant, of a sojourner, has no uh, bearing on how long or short they live there or intend to live there. It's just if they're not from here, here's how you treat them. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. He says in the same way, when you beat your olive trees so the ripe olives fall, don't go back over them a second time. That, those olives that stay in the tree are not yours. They are for the immigrant, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. When you gather grapes in your vineyard, in the same way you forget some, don't go back and get it. That doesn't belong to you. The justice that was due to the vulnerable, to the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, the poor, was to go to the field, to gather what was left over, to thresh it, to carry it, to bring it home, to prepare it, to cook it, and therefore provide for your family. The justice that was due to them was to work with what they gathered. The justice was not a handout, but work. God created us to work. We see that in creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Work is good. Therefore, a general principle to think about when it talks about pursuing justice in our society 
is that providing work who is, for someone who is able to work is more just than giving them a handout because it affirms their dignity as a human being. If you want to see a beautiful demonstration of this justice, read the book of Ruth. We did that a couple summers ago, and it's just such a beautiful example of this very thing, of justice being offered to one who is both a widow and a foreigner. But again, notice, this isn't called charity. This isn't just the purview of a nonprofit organization. This isn't just a government program. This is the justice due from the ordinary citizen to the ordinary fatherless or widow or sojourner. It's not charity. It's the justice that is due to them because of their vulnerable situation. God says it's just to treat them in this way because it fits with His righteous character. Because, as He says at the end now, this is how He treated them. You were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. God looked on the unjust situation of the Israelites languishing in slavery for 400 years to Pharaoh, and he acted in justice, both retributive justice in the ten plagues against Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and in restorative justice when he called his people out of there, led them through the wilderness, provided for their needs, and brought them into their new home. And he says to Israel, because that's what I've done for you, follow my example. Reflect my generous heart of justice in the way that you care for the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the poor. But, as we see, especially in the book of Isaiah, this justice that was due to these vulnerable groups is the very thing that Israel failed to do. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. Todd took us through this a while back. But I want to come back to this because now with these ideas of justice and righteousness, see how this lands as we read it. How the faithful city has become a whore. She was full of justice. Righteousness used to lodge in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. It's just corroded and corrupted. Your best wine is watered down. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's cause does not come before them. Man, they were an unjust society. And so just as God did with Pharaoh, He says, I will now come and execute justice. He says, therefore the Lord of hosts declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies. I will avenge myself on the foes. I will turn my hand against you. Retribution, punishment of the guilty. And yet, at the same time, in the midst of that, this would be a way of smelting away, purifying away the impurities within them. I will remove your alloy, and I will restore your justices, or your judges, as at first. And your counselors is at the beginning. And the result of this, of God coming in and acting both in retributive justice and restorative justice, look at this next part. Afterward, because I do this, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. 
Ultimately, as they pointed out in the video, God's promise to redeem his people through righteousness and justice comes together in the person of Jesus Christ. I love how they said it in the video, that that God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us the gift of the life of Jesus. Look at this again. When we look at righteousness and justice, Jesus is the only perfectly righteous one. From beginning to end, his life was motivated and shaped by love for God and love for others. In the way that he acted, though, he sought out of that righteousness to bring justice into his society in both senses of the word. We often look at and we read with our kids and we celebrate the healing miracles of Jesus because they're amazing and they're astounding and they show Jesus' power not only of sickness and death and the forces of nature and all of that, but if we don't look carefully, if we don't stop and pause, we miss What Jesus was doing by healing lepers, by healing the woman with the issue of blood, by raising the widow's son from the dead, these were acts of restorative justice, allowing them to be reintegrated into society, to be restored to their families. You see Jesus' heart for justice in the way He ate meals, the way that He shared table fellowship. We saw last week when we looked at Isaiah 25 that, that, that sharing a meal is an intensely relational thing in the, in the biblical concept. And Jesus ate meals with everybody. People called him out for the way that he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He even ate with Pharisees. And this wasn't about Jesus just going after a meal looking to, to satisfy his hunger. This was Jesus, our Lord, showing us an example of what restorative justice looks like in everyday life. And he told us to follow in his steps. Look what he said in Luke 14. He's sitting at a feast, and he says to the guy, the host of the feast, he says, okay, hey, when you do this in the future, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't just invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Because if they also invite you back and there's just kind of quid pro quo, we both do this, That's all you get out of it. But instead, he says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. But you will be repaid at the resurrection of who? The just. This was the just way to operate, Jesus is saying. They won't earn their resurrection because they've done the right actions. But rather, we have to flip it around. Their just actions toward the poor and the vulnerable around them demonstrated that they truly know God, that they knew what it was like to be transformed by God's kindness to them. And so they extended that same kind of justice to those around them. At the same time, though, as Jesus is encouraging, this is what justice looks like in your life and your actions, he's calling out people like the scribes and the Pharisees for the way that they looked so good from the outside. They had all the external, superficial things down, and they, they completely missed the point. Look what Jesus says to them in Matthew 23. He says, whoa, destruction is coming to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're hypocrites. Yeah, you're tithing your dill and your mint and your cumin. You got the right ratios of all the spices down but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. He's like, it's like you're, you're, you're straining your soup to get the fly out of it and you don't even notice the camel that's there. You have completely missed the point. And in response to Jesus both calling out the injustice of the scribes and the Pharisees and demonstrating justice in his life and actions, 
while the scribes and the Pharisees together with the Sanhedrin, they, they, their, their true hearts were revealed. They looked externally righteous until together they plotted together to put Jesus to death, to have him unjustly killed on the cross. Jesus was the victim of the greatest travesty of justice in the history of the world. But this is the most amazing part. Listen, this story is very familiar to many of us, but don't ever let your familiarity with the gospel numb you to how amazing this is. Think about this. As Jesus is on the cross suffering unjustly at the hands of sinful people, simultaneously in the wisdom of God, through that same suffering, Jesus was taking the full brunt of the retributive justice of God for you and for me. The full just punishment for our unrighteousness, Jesus was satisfying at the same time that he was being unjustly killed by people. It's astounding. And by this act, as our substitute standing in our place to take the retributive justice that we deserved, by satisfying that, Jesus has now opened the way to extend to us restorative justice as well. To redeem us from our sin. To rescue us from slavery to sin and death. To take away the shame of the things that we've done wrong to give us a new glorious identity as sons and daughters of God and a seat at that amazing feast that's coming that we looked at last week. This is amazing. In the work of Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, the two sides of God's justice are perfectly put on display as Jesus absorbs the retribution that we deserved so that he could extend to us the restoration that we did not deserve, but that he desired to give us. And for all who turn to Jesus Christ in faith, as Isaiah once said, those in her who repent will be redeemed by the justice and righteousness of a God. That's the good news. Amen? Man, if you're someone in here who has not yet turned and repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, I pray today's the day you do that. We got some folks that would be up here at the prayer room that would love to pray for you in a little bit. But man, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, as we look to the next three weeks of this series, we need to be thinking carefully, what should our response to this be? What does it look like to follow our Lord's example? Let me give you two things. First and most obviously, our response to the justice and righteousness of God displayed through Jesus Christ should be gratitude. Seriously. Unceasing, never-ending, not just, okay, Lord, thank you, but ongoing outpouring of praise. That's what we do when we sing songs together. It's not just the way we get ourselves hyped up for the message or something like that. When we sing and worship together, we are declaring our gratitude to God for the grace and the justice that He's shown us. We should never get tired of that. Because we'll never get to the end of the grace that God's shown us. We should never get tired of thanking Him for the grace that He's shown us. So that's the first one. Is your life defined by gratitude to God for the grace He's shown you? And secondly, our response should be to seek to extend that same grace and justice to those around us. God told the Israelites, because of what I did for you in rescuing you when you were foreigners in Egypt, this is the way I want you to treat the foreigner, the widow, the orphan. 
Follow my example in that. When we think about these two sides of justice, we have to get this clear, especially because if you're anything like me, you've typically thought of justice as retribution, punishment. And it can almost feel like, well, there's not much that we do then because Scripture is pretty clear in places like Romans 13 that retributive justice, crime, and punishment has been entrusted to the governing authorities that God's put over us. That's their job. They are accountable to God for how they handle that job. Now, thank God we live in a society where we are allowed to speak to the governing authorities about how justly or unjustly they are handling their responsibilities. And we ought to speak truth to those in positions of power, even if they don't let us. But don't just think about it in terms of retributive justice, because when we think about restorative justice, restoring those who are vulnerable, seeking to rescue and provide and protect those who are vulnerable, the primary responsibility for that does not lie with the government, does not lie with the governing authorities. That one lies squarely on our shoulders as the people of God. We are those who, having received God's grace and justice, are uniquely equipped to pursue this in the world around us. And if this has not been on our radar, we are derelict in our duty. We who know what it's like to receive grace and justice from God seek to extend that to others. Beginning here within the fellowship of this church. Who are the vulnerable, the overlooked here? And then extending outward to our community. There's a million different ways this needs to look. There's so much learning we all have to do, both together and from each other, both about those in need of justice and what it means to actually pursue justice on their behalf. And my prayer, my prayer for, for all of us, and especially for Chris as he leads us over these next three weeks, is that we would begin to take steps in that direction. I want to close by reading a quote to you from a book that, that over the last year or so, as I've been looking into this, has been so helpful. It's written by Tim Keller. It's a book called Generous Justice. And he makes this great connection that we have to truly think about in terms of what this looks like in our lives. Look what he says. He says, If a person has grasped the meaning of God's grace in his heart, he will do justice. If he doesn't live justly, then he may say with his lips that he is grateful for God's grace, but in his heart he is far from Him. If he doesn't care about the poor, it reveals that at best, he doesn't understand the grace he has experienced. And at worst, he has not re yet really encountered the saving mercy of God. Grace should make you just. Let's pray. Jesus, would you teach us? Would you overwhelm us again this week of the kindness that you've shown us that you saw us in our helpless state. You left the glory of heaven, became a human being, walked amongst us, perfectly demonstrated love and justice, died unjustly, rose again, so that we might be forgiven and made new. Would you overwhelm us with the goodness that you've shown us? And from that overwhelm, that overflowingness of the grace and justice you've shown us, would that overflow into the lives of those around us? Would you teach us, Lord Jesus, by your example? In your name we pray, amen.